0: You know, I thought we had just about seen every possible issue we could uh, with this whole COVID business. And even now, as we get a little bit more back to normal, um, I'm still discovering there, there's challenges with it, especially with the mask. I thought I had endured just about every single inconvenience we possibly could. And then recently it dawned on me, um, this one I hadn't observed before. Uh, let me tell you what I mean. When I see somebody I think I know, I have this debate that goes on in my head. Um, because I'm not sure if it's them or not, because I can only see their eyes. I don't know if this happens to you or not. Uh, And the debate goes, should I say hi to this person or not? Um, Because if I don't know them, if I've mistaken them for somebody else, and I say hi, how's it going, I'm going to seem like an overly friendly person, and they're going to go, what's wrong with this guy? I don't even know him. Or there's the other side of it. If I don't say hi, and it is somebody I know, they're going to go, well, that's pretty mean. Pastor didn't even recognize me, didn't even say hello, and I might offend them that way. It's really a challenge, and again, um, I don't know if you've experienced this or not, so let's try this. Uh, let me show you a couple examples of what I need. Uh, this is a famous person. Can anybody recognize him? Maybe you can. Anybody wanna take a guess? Okay, that's Matt, oh, oh, there, I skipped that, Matt Damon. So if you've ever seen any of the movies, uh, what's the one, uh, the spy movie he's in? Born Again, uh, no, what is it? Jason Bourne. Okay, yeah, all right, all right. So I know he's in that one, he's in a bunch of others too. All right, and I thought, well, maybe it's just men. So I picked out a famous gal. Can anybody guess who she is? No clue? All right, you're gonna kick yourself. I'm not a big Cardassian fan. That's, that's, it's Kim Cardassian. I mean, everybody knows her, even if you don't follow the Cardassians. Um, once you take the mask off, oh, okay, yeah, I, I, I get it. Um, so I've, I'm finding it frustrating that even though little by little, Uh, Life is returning to what it should be, and I'm living for the day that these masks don't need to be worn anymore. Um, It still kind of um, skews our perception of life, which stands in direct contrast of our lesson today. Um, Because Jesus did everything possible to acknowledge to the world exactly who he was. He didn't go around wearing a mask. He didn't hide his identity. In fact, over and over again, he told the people that he was Messiah. He was the promised one of God and declared himself to be the very son of God. So it's ironic that in today's lesson, um, we're going to actually work through six different clues that the Holy Spirit gives us to call attention to who Jesus is and what he has come to do for us. And what stands in this ironic contrast is that the man in our lesson who recognizes Jesus, and it took a little while, but finally recognizes Jesus is the last man that you think would actually do that. He was the man who was placed in charge of Jesus' execution. Now this theme, Eloi, not Elias. Eloi, we're gonna hear is one of the words that Jesus said, and we'll talk about that. Elias is the name of Elijah in the original language. And there was this, what seems to be confusion, But we're going to work through that today and see that what was happening was on the one hand, God's solution to our desperate situation. On the other hand, man's solution to how to deal with the problems of this life. So we're going to work through this section from John 15 as we watch the Son of God die. At noon,
1: darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, Lema Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him cared for his needs many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there
0: so that's the lesson and, and typically we work through verse by verse and, and we'll follow the, the order of the text but we'll actually just study it from the point of these six clues that the holy spirits give and let's start with the first one now three hours of darkness that take place for the last half of Jesus's crucifixion and typically, this unusual darkness is explained away as as a natural event, uh, a, a solar eclipse. And I guess for, if you were looking at it from a non-believing point of view, that's probably about the only uh, logical explanation you could come to. Uh, and the question before us then is that really what it is, or was it in fact a supernatural event? Um, I'm not any astronomer or meteorologist or any of that, but it doesn't take a lot of work to come to figure out what actually took place. Up on the upper right hand there's actually it's three different types of eclipse total annular and then the partial the total of lights pretty much blocked out the annular there's that ring partial you at least see part of the Sun and the beautiful thing about uh, astronomical events is they're very mathematical you can actually go back you can do the work uh, you can work the equations and figure certain things out Um, and so far modern science is studied all of the eclipses that they have knowledge of, and uh, the longest eclipse that has ever taken place has been about 12 and a half minutes which doesn't coincide with the three hours of darkness. Um, So immediately we're looking at this, this can't be an eclipse. It has to be something out of the ordinary. There's other information which the Holy Spirit gives. And if you look at the John passage, that clearly identifies uh, what time of year that we're in, the Passover. Scripture tells us according to the Jewish calendar exactly when that happens. Solar eclipses can only happen when the moon reaches its new phase. Uh, you don't see much of the moon and it It does block out the Sun if it passes in its path the thing with the Passover is that tells us that the timing would not have worked Uh, the Passover happens in the middle of the month when there's a full moon so what we see is, is that this event takes place 180 degrees out of phase with the possibility of a solar eclipse which leads us to ask the question why didn't the people there acknowledge the fact that God had just performed a miracle Now, granted, they didn't have their calendars and clocks the way we do nowadays, but I would guess that none of them had ever lived through three hours of darkness during the brightest part of the day. Wouldn't you think that at least some of them would stop and go, hmm, this doesn't really seem right. This is very much unusual. Something strange is going on here. And when you start with this clue and start to stack all the other ones on, it's just a sad tragedy that it's only the Roman centurion of all people there that stopped to acknowledge what's taking place. Let me show you what I mean as we work deeper into this. And this is probably the most intense of the six clues. The alloy, the alloy, lama sabachthani. And a lot of people want to attribute the reaction of the people to confusion. And first let me explain the confusion. As Jesus speaks these words, what he's doing is he's actually mixing two different languages, the Hebrew and Aramaic. Hebrew is the native tongue of the Jewish people. Aramaic is a hybrid language. Uh, Up until the time of the Babylonian captivity, the Jews only spoke Hebrew. After living in that land for 70 years, obviously that culture had an influence, not only on their daily lives, but then also on their language. Uh, Aramaic is very close to or similar. I would call it a daughter language of the Hebrew. Uh, And unless you know that, there are words that can be come confusing so even if we want to allow for the confusion there's still a problem with that at least the Jewish people who were there should have stopped and gone wait a minute what I just heard him say is very familiar it's not exact but it's almost word-for-word what we find in the first verse of Psalm 22 the messianic psalm that is a precursor this is how you will know Messiah these things will take happen These things will happen and take place and as jesus spoke those words either they were totally discounting discounting what he was saying or they were completely ignorant of the fact that he was perfectly fulfilling everything that was said about coming messiah and when you think about the religious state in israel at that time it is conceivable that a lot of people maybe had just never been taught what this was about Now, I'm not trying to make you Hebrew or Aramaic experts, but I did want to show you there on the left-hand side is the uh, Old Testament, the Hebrew for Elijah, and then on the right would be the New Testament or the Greek way it would be rendered Elijah. If you take a look at that, so those are the words, Eli, Eli, neither one of those, while they're similar, there's no way that if you're paying attention, you would confuse those two. Which should bring us to the point, I don't don't know if you've ever heard sermons or lessons on this normally, and that's how I grew up thinking, okay, the mix of languages, people didn't understand what he was saying. But as you dig deeper in here, I, I don't think it was confusion. In fact, I think it was the exact opposite. I think they understood clearly what he was saying, and from this point on, rather than acknowledging something strange is going on here today, they turn to add to the mockery against Jesus. There's actually two elements which kind of, suggests that path, uh, and it has to do with this understanding of Elijah. Uh, because Elijah is only one of two people who've never died, at least so far, uh, and have gone on to uh, heaven, there was a legend amongst the Jewish people that at key moments in a, a, a good Jewish life, a God-fearing Jewish life, Elijah would actually show up and become part of the events. Um, if you've ever attended a Jewish circumcision, you will always see an empty chair there. It's known as the Elijah chair because a traditional Jew believes that at that event, because it's a big event in the life of a Jewish family, Elijah will come and bless the circumcision. Same thing's true of the Passover, the Jewish celebration of the Passover. Traditionally, there are four cups, and the participants will drink out of the first three, but leave the fourth one alone. That's known as the Elijah cup. And it's left for Elijah to come and participate in the Seder meal, and then also bless that Passover. Now, the part of the legend that concerns this lesson has to do with the fact that they also believed that at key moments in a person's life, especially as they're facing difficulties or as they're about ready to leave this world, Elijah would come up to accompany or assist or help that person transition from this life to the life that is to come. And so when Jesus speaks these things, it's a mockery thinking, well, he's not going to get help from Elijah. Even though Pilate had declared him publicly to be innocent, none of the people there, at least as far as we can understand, thought that Jesus was this perfect, innocent individual. So their words may simply be mocking his declaration of being innocent. I tend to lean more to the other possible explanation of mockery. and It has to do with the fact that as God is closing out the Old Testament in the last book, Of Malachi and uh, the final chapter almost the final verses one of the things that God has Malachi say is before the time of Messiah Elijah will come and again because Elijah had never died many of the Jewish people took this literally thinking that somehow he would physically visibly return to earth before the time of Messiah Uh, Unfortunately, they misunderstood what God was saying, and he wasn't speaking literally, he was speaking figuratively, and that's verified from our gospel lesson in that conversation that Jesus has with the disciples. That's why they're asking, why do the teachers say that Elijah will come? And Jesus says, he has come. He's pointing directly to John the Baptist, the second Elijah, the person whose ministry very much mimicked that of Elijah, to call the hearts of the parents and the children back to God. That was Elijah's job. That was John the Baptist's job, pointing to Messiah. And then Jesus states, they rejected him. Of course, they're also going to reject me. The words that they spoke at the cross seem to be them mocking Jesus' claim to be that Messiah. There is one other reaction to Jesus's statement and it's this with the drink and sometimes that's very confusing. Even the video I showed you didn't have it quite right. It wasn't one of the Roman soldiers who put the sponge at the end of the spear. We're told it was simply a person who took a stalk of the hyssop branch and held it up to Jesus. And a lot of times that's looked at as one of the small bit of compassion somebody showed to Jesus at the cross. And again, I, it doesn't seem to be supportive from what scripture says because we're told that this man actually gave him that drink and he's the one that began the conversation of saying, well, let's see if Elijah shows up now. I've given him a little bit of help. Let's see if Elijah wants to help him. Matthew says it's the people who say that, and actually when you go to do the grammar work, you find it works out perfectly. The man started this mocking, the people all joined in. The verbs tell us that. So eventually the entire group is going, yeah, let's see if Elijah shows up to help this guy. Nobody really thought Jesus was who he claimed to be. And it's within this drink then, the Lord offers us the third clue. Mark doesn't talk about it, John does, that it's actually Jesus who initiates this drink. He makes a request, I'm thirsty. And that's where our Old Testament lesson comes in. Jesus, by doing that, fulfills prophecy. But what they had witnessed was an amazing fulfillment and then so much more. We heard about in that last verse of our Old Testament lesson, gall and vinegar. And that's exactly what took place. You're probably aware of that when Jesus first got to Calvary, they offered him a drink, and it's described as wine mixed with gall. Gall is this mild narcotic that was often given to the prisoners to calm them down. And when he tasted it, he spit it out. No. He was going to bear the full brunt of the pain and torture f- as a payment for sin. It was the second drink that he accepted, what's known as oxus It's a vinegary, cheap wine that the soldiers tended to drink as they stood guard at the foot of the cross. Apparently, somebody grabbed some of that and that's what Jesus drank. There was nothing to lessen the pain. He simply asked for it to fulfill scripture, which, which leads to this interesting fourth clue. And, and I, I've made it a big deal about how this study from Mark is different from the others. And you see that in Mark's writing style. He just simply talks about Jesus making the shout. And, and he doesn't concern himself with what did he say. And there's debate. Was it the tetelestai? I've paid for all sin. Or was it that final statement, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now Mark doesn't Focus on that, he doesn't focus on what was said, he focuses on how he said it. And when you remember that he's writing to Roman citizens, it makes perfect sense. Because most of the Roman world understood perfectly how crucifixion worked. And maybe you've had it described before, but let me just refresh your memories, that most people died on the cross while being crucified from asphyxiation because the arms are placed up and over time that strain on the muscles and the diaphragm slowly but surely tighten up and cramp and making breathing next to impossible if the man has enough strength in his legs he can push himself up enough to get a quick breath and then he lets himself down but every time he does it, either the legs are hurting or this area is hurting and that's why it makes perfect sense that when pilot wants the prisoners to die quickly, they go and break the legs because then they can't support their weight and these tighten up all the faster and so a person can't breathe. Now you put the asphyxiation on top of the trauma suffered from the blood loss, the dehydration, the torture, most of Mark's readers would have immediately recognized this is no ordinary man because it is physically impossible for a human being at that point to shout out a final statement maybe some little whispers or quibbles but not what Jesus did which shows us another thing and John reminds us of that Jesus died differently than any other human being not just in this powerful shout but the fact that he chose the moment of his death he says you don't take my life from me he's God but I lay it down think about that God chose the precise moment when he would die when his body would cease to live as a sign, as a clue that he paid for our sins, which ties into this next clue, the t- temple curtain ripping in two. And I know, I know it's this visible statement of God, there's now nothing that separates the holiest place from the rest of the world, that there's nothing that stands between God and sinners, but, but there's more that we need to understand. And we wouldn't know about it except for Psalms like 141 that talked to us about this worship custom of the Jewish people, the evening sacrifice. They had a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Twice a day they would gather at the temple or at the synagogue and they would witness the priest putting a sacrificial animal on the altar to be burnt up to God. It was their way of crying out to God for mercy, please forgive us, and realizing that God had promised to do that. It's interesting that the evening sacrifice began on the very moment that Jesus died. And this unusual event of the temple curtain ripping interrupts the evening sacrifice. It's God's way of saying quit focusing here and turn your attention to what's going on just outside of the city. Day after day, you've come and put these animals on the altar. You don't need to do that anymore. It's always been just a practice for you to understand what I was going to do to rescue this world. Outside your city at this very moment, as I rip open this curtain, the one all-time sacrifice is taking place so that none of this has to happen anymore and so that you don't have to fear God's anger or judgment. The final clue is the man that I talked about before. Several times throughout this, at very least, and the majority of people who were there were Jewish people. There were things that should have at least made them stop and go, That that's just not right. This I've, I've never seen something like this before, the three hours of darkness, temple curtain ripping, the way this man died, they, they should have at least connected that with some of the Old Testament promises of God, but they didn't. Wouldn't you know it that it's a man who was raised to worship multiple gods and amongst them the highest Caesar who ruled all of the Roman Empire was considered the greatest of those gods this man had been indoctrinated in idolatry from the moment he was born he's the one that God chooses to stand up and speak up and go this is not normal this is not ordinary no doubt he had probably witnessed tens if not hundreds of crucifixions And this man's attention was called to the fact that this man was different. And he acknowledges that with his confession. This is the son of God. Now, our final verses aren't really part of the six clues. Um, And it's not just tack on information either. Mark is actually putting in a transition from the moment that God himself chose to die to what's going to follow. And and that's basically our next two lessons. Next week, we talk about the burial of Jesus. Something that I think sometimes is glossed over too quickly, but it's a step of his humiliation. True God being put into the very earth which he created. And then the week after that, our celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Mark is getting ready for all of those coming events. But again, I'd like us to consider his audience, that he's writing to Roman citizens. And there has to be something that strikes them that... I wonder if we ever catch that at the foot of the cross, there were all of these followers of Jesus and all amongst them, there's only one man, John. We know about John because it was at the foot of the cross that Jesus transitions the care of his mother from himself to that of his most trusted disciple. He says, that's your mom now. So John's the only one, as far as we know, of the followers of Jesus Christ, who was a man who was there to watch his friend and Savior died now think about this Roman people Roman citizens who were born and raised in a culture that is male-dominated the rules and laws are written for the men and while today's culture would freak out about that that's just the reality of the world at that time it was the most popular the most powerful culture that existed imagine that they're hearing this I would suspect that at least some of them had to stop and go where are the men We hear about these faithful women. We hear about these followers who all the way from Galilee down to Judea wanted to support and serve their Lord. Where are the strong men? Where are the soldiers of the Jewish people? Where are the Christian men to stand up and support the day that God died? All right, I've given you a lot to think about. So let me kind of wrap it up this way with one more series of thoughts. And and maybe you can't imagine this. But how much hate do you think it takes to stand and watch a man die and then somewhere in that process decide, you know what, let's make fun of him. What has to be in a person's heart to witness a crucifixion, literally the most excruciatingly painful, agonizing way for somebody to pass from this life into eternity? What must be in a person's heart to go, you know what, it's about time we got done with this Jesus problem. I'm glad that's all behind us. Go home on with the rest of their day because finally this supposed imposter has all been taken care of. Doesn't any of what took place on that day kind of stick in your head and go, that, that, that just wasn't right. How many Friday afternoons do you spend three hours in the darkness? How many times do you hear somebody as they're dying, quote perfectly, Old Testament chunks. How do you watch something like that and not come away going? i got to look into this more. This is just so unusual. And what's striking about this is how scary it is on two levels. It has to do with not really being able to see, not recognizing somebody for who they are, not really seeing the truth. I'm not sure which is scarier about this entire series of study that we've done in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, On the one hand, it has just basically pointed a finger at all of us and convicted us of our sin and said, you put him there. Every step of the way in Mark's methodical way of writing through the Holy Spirit, it, it, it puts us at the foot of the cross going, he's dying for you. But on the other hand, every time Mark brings out these interesting points, it reminds us how crazy this world is and how obstinately stubborn sinful mankind is because they can have right in front of them the very answer to life's greatest problems and simply refuse to acknowledge it or do anything about it. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. You know what our culture is doing right now. It's screaming out for all this equality. Um, Equity is really the word that we should be using. Um, And they want the things that mankind has always wanted, love and truth those fill the voids of our lives those fill the empty places of our heart just be honest with me and please love me that's what god created us for that's the basics of our design and so it shouldn't surprise us that the world is screaming for this but what is so scary and what is so tragic is god says here and the world says no thank you let's do this our way they don't want loy my god your god they want to lie us They want a man-made solution now I'm going to share with you a video but it does require just a little bit of introduction because I'm very careful a lot of times these could be misinterpreted as oh it's a political thing and it's not it's a cultural thing it doesn't even have to do with our country it has to do with our neighbor to the north but what I've found what I've discovered is things that happen over in Europe things that happen in our surrounding countries uh, our country races as fast as it can to imitate Now this is the world's way of trying to fill that
2: void. A Canadian man was arrested this week after violating a court order that banned him from speaking publicly about his son's gender transition. The man, whose identity is reportedly under a publication ban by a British Columbia Court of Appeals to protect his child, was found in contempt of court and arrested Tuesday for calling the teen his daughter and publicly referring to him with the pronouns, she, and, her, according to the post-millennial. The teenager was born as a female and reportedly identifies as transgender and prefers the use of male pronouns. The father reportedly began litigation against the teen's mother after learning of the transition, and the matter was settled by the province's highest court earlier this year, according to Global News. The parents are separated. The high court ordered the dad to not stand in the way of the 15-year-old's hormone therapy and to try and better understand gender dysphoria, the outlet reported. He was also told to stop speaking to the media about the case and warned that his public attempts to undermine his child's wishes was a form of family violence, according to the article.
0: I recognize the fact that this has been going on for some time, but I, 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 I worry about the day where basically we might be thrown in prison because we want to call our children what God actually created them to be that what that didn't have is the mother they are separated there the mother's a psychologist the father's just an ordinary joe and and that seems to be where some of the conflict comes in Uh, and what concerns me most about this is us standing here hearing things like this and and i don't know about you but my first reaction is is to think of what a crazy world we live in and i i I can't wait i can't wait until it's all behind us Um, and and it makes me angry things like this and it because it's such a mocking of god Uh, um, these people are simply denying God's design and that he is the ultimate creator and that when God says male and female, that's what God means. And then I have to catch myself because as I'm getting worked up about those things, I, I forget standing there, I'm watching my Savior die for everybody, not, not just for me, not, not just for you, but for that family that is so confused for that family that has been misled to find its answers, its solutions to life's problems, and Elias, the man made things, and not Aloy, the God made things. And and I truly believe that we're going to be confronted with more and more and more of this, and I think we'll have to fight the real battle within ourselves, not just of what is happening in our culture, but what the devil is tempting us with to go on inside of our hearts because as we stand there, we've been given the solution. We've been given the alloy. That is our God on the cross dying for us, but he's everybody's God. What's been beautiful about this study is that Mark in a very methodical way has put us at the foot of the cross and has reminded us again and again of not only God's promise, but God's fulfillment. Of that promise we've had a couple Old Testament prophecies which perfectly show us God connecting the dots for everybody there and they should have been able to recognize Jesus he wasn't wearing a mask and he told them who he was but then I also remember that Mark's lessons have put us there next to the Roman centurion who for some time was ignorant of not only who the man is but what he has done for us and it's such a blessing and a beautiful thing for God to invite us back, for the Holy Spirit through Mark to invite us back to stand there once again next to the Roman centurion and not cry out for Elias, but to cry out to our God. This surely is the Son of God.
3: And one day God looked down on his planned paradise and said, it needs a Savior. So God sent his Son God said, I need someone willing to walk alongside people. Show them how to love, how to live, what grace, forgiveness, and redemption look like, and how to give their life to others. So, God sent his son. God said, I need someone who will go where no one else will, who will love those others hate and speak to those whom others condemn. Someone who will laugh and cry and get angry, and who will remind us that hope and grace are real and available for all. So, God sent His Son. God said, I need someone zealous enough to challenge the established order, but caring enough to remind the children that I love them. Someone who will heal the sick, cure the lame, turn water into wine, feed thousands, walk on water, cast out demons, eat with sinners, and teach people what my kingdom looks like. So, God sent his son. I need someone who will do my work, who will teach people to serve and give and care for one another in my name. Someone who will love people even when they get it wrong and remind them that they can have another chance. So, God sent his son. God said, I need someone who will stay up all night begging for release and then the next morning still go willingly to their death. Someone who will be sinless and blameless, and yet will be tortured and beaten for the sins of the rest of the world. Someone who will die but not be defeated, who I can raise up from death, so that death and sin will have no power over any of my children. Someone who is free from the grave and can bring freedom to the world in my name. Someone who will not just bring new life, but who will offer eternal life to all people. I need someone who will never leave you, someone who will be with you always, someone who will forever show just how much I love you. So, God sent his son.